Welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the weekly show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. And Aaron, we've got a, another interesting road trip, don't we, today? We do. And and you know what I like about our show more than anything, besides the fact that we're very good friends and we get along, but you know what I like? What's that? Is sometimes we pick the odd story. We don't pick always the obvious stories, right? You know what I mean? Well, that's right. And uh, we do a little digging on this show and sometimes come up with ones that are just would make for, for great conversation or just interesting period, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Now, we had been talking before we started recording today, though, that uh, a little bit of a death theme going through the show, isn't there? Kind of, yeah, but we'll let people figure that out as we talk. But uh, yeah, we, we couldn't get around one of them. It's too big, so. No, absolutely. So uh, let's hit the road. Maps? Check. Snacks? Double check. Tunes? Check. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we are cruising the rock and roll highway in our Wayback Music Machine. Are you ready, my friend? I sure am. I have the feeling this is going to be the start of a great adventure. Kind of a magical mystery tour. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. So this is the big one we couldn't avoid, and it's actually very hard for me to talk about, to be perfectly honest, but we're heading to Los Angeles on November the 29th, 2001. Yeah, this one is uh, hard for me to talk about as well, because you know he was my my favorite member of the Fab Four. Yeah, it's a tough one. It is, but uh, let's head back to L.A. and uh, find out the story. Normally, I love visiting L.A., but uh, under these circumstances, not so much. It's November the 29th, 2001, and the world has just found out that the quiet beetle, George Harrison, has passed away at the age of 58 from lung cancer. And uh, what a sad day this was. Sad story. I mean, you think 58 is so bloody young when you got... You know, I just saw Bob Dylan, and he's 80 years old. I mean, it's so young, and um, yeah, it was a very sad day. It was, you know, he had just um, released the All Things Must Pass reissue with the new version of My Sweet Lord on it. Um, yeah, I got. I have to say, Tony, this is not a good one. No, not at all, but it, like you say, it was the one that we couldn't avoid. But uh, I always found uh, George Harrison's career trajectory so fascinating that... Um, for the longest time in the Beatles, right? He was always in the wings waiting, you know, and uh, overshadowed by Paul McCartney and John Lennon, but finally came into his own, especially on the uh, Abbey Road album and going further, going forward from there. Um, and, and what a great songwriter he turned out to be. Well, I, I think if you're going to be overshadowed by anybody... Um, they're pretty good. You know that. You know that. I have to tell you that we're kind of trying to keep this a bit light. But do you know the funny story about Sinatra doing something in concert? Did you ever hear that story? Well, I know Sinatra said that it was you know maybe the the greatest love song ever written, but I don't know the rest of the story. So before, so Harrison's there, and Sinatra goes, not only. Is this the greatest love song Lennon and McCartney have ever written? Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) It's like, no, it's my song, you know. (laughs) You know, at least he got one out of two. It is maybe the greatest love song ever written. but uh, It could be. Could be. (laughs) Oh, man. 
<laughs> that's what's ha- that's what happens when you're in the Beatles. People just make that assumption, right? Well, exactly. But uh, he really came into his own, and and again, I always uh, found it fascinating that he was the first one out of the gate with a solo album. Well, yeah. Well, actually, you're right. In 1968, he put out a solo album called Wonderwall Music, a uh, soundtrack to a film. But he was the first solo Beatle to have a number one single and a number one album, All Things Must Pass, and the worldwide hit, My Sweet Lord. Well, that's right. And then uh, following that, he did the concert for Bangladesh, for which he won Grammys, another number one. Oh, and you know, All Things Must Pass is the first triple album by an artist to go to number one. Yeah, so, so uh, nobody, I don't think anybody would have uh, saw that coming from George, you know? I mean, I think people knew no. that he was uh, becoming an excellent songwriter, but uh, to have make a statement like that right out of the gate after the group had broken up and, uh, uh, you know, it was amazing. Well, again, as you say, it was unexpected. I mean, it's funny because if you look at the, the years from 70 to 75, the two most successful solo Beatles were Ringo and George, which, <laughs> which you know, Lennon wasn't doing. After Imagine, Lennon was kind of plummeting with some time in New York City and stuff. But here's George and Ringo just knocking out them hits, right? So, yeah, it was kind of interesting. But uh, And then also, let's not forget, he had uh, his third solo, well, his third album after the, Be- the Beatles broke up, Living in the Material World, made number one as well with a number one single, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth. Yeah, I always loved George's stuff after he left the Beatles, you know, and, and I yeah. loved even the Traveling Wilbury, day, Wilbury oh, days. I, yeah. th- those two albums are just, it's like a dream band. Dylan, Harrison, you know, Jeff Lynn, Tom oh, yeah. Petty. Yeah, fantastic, and, eh? And Roy for the first album. Fantastic band. Fantastic albums. They're just so great. They are fantastic. And you know what I watched the other day, which just made me smile, was the uh, video for When We Was Fab. You know, it's so funny you say that because I actually put that on the Spotify playlist for the show. Oh, that? did you? See, yeah. we think along the same. That's a great video and, with Ringo in it. And, yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's terrific and uh, makes me smile every time I watch it, you know. But uh, I always, uh, you know, for me, uh, love George. I've always, always, always loved George and um, just something about his writing and his demeanor and his everything about him. Well, and he also, he he received the first Billboard Century Artist Award when the Billboard decided to do that. And the reason he received it, for all those reasons you just mentioned, but also because he really single-handedly introduced the world to world music. I mean, long before Peter Gabriel and Womad and long before reggae made a big splash, how's that for a good use of words. Um, you know, he was out there with the Indian music and, and uh, that that changed the world. He And also I read an article about how he introduced North America to yoga. Oh, and wow. meditation, right? So, yeah, he's, he was a pretty, you know, influential guy. And, and, you're, and you're a big fan of the Concert for George film too, aren't you? Oh my gosh, yes. Huge, huge fan. And I, I mean, Billy Preston, when he covers uh, My Sweet Lord, it just... I'm smiling like a teenager here, you know. Uh, He's smiling right now, folks. He yeah, really is. <laughs> yeah. That, what a what a great try. How can you not smile at that performance? How can you not? How can you say the words Billy Preston and not smile? Well, exactly. I mean, just, you know. And you know, I, the, my favorite uh, part of that concert is whenever they cut to uh, Danny Harrison, George's son, and George yeah. has just got uh, Danny's got the biggest grin on his face. The whole thing. He's like, I cannot he believe I'm on stage with these guys. 
I know. And they're just, I mean, McCartney and Ringo, uh, Gary Brooker from Procol Harum, oh. Billy Preston, Eric Clapton. I mean, it's just a superstar. It's a great, and it's filmed beautifully, too, by the way. If you haven't seen it, folks, oh. get a copy. It's yeah, well worth it's seeing. It's so well worth it. Now, what, uh, what would have been on the charts here? Well, before we do the charts, I want to mention one thing that's sure. kind of interesting. This day also was the day that Harrison released his last original song. He wrote a song for a guy named Jules Holland, who's a big name in England. Jules Holland had an album called Small World, Big Band. And Harrison wrote and recorded a song called Horse to Water in his home for um, that album. And that was the last thing he ever released. So. Oh, wow. But I got to tell you, the reason I bring it up is because Harrison changed his publishing company for that one song. So when I, when I got the CD... It said published by R.I.P. Music. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Yeah. I thought there's, Har there's Harrison's humor right there. Well, that's right. Uh, self very self-deprecating, right? So Always, always. So the charts, my friend, the charts, the top five albums that week were pretty interesting. Number five is a, a woman who I simply adore, Anya, uh, an album called A Day Without Rain, which is a fantastic album. Yeah, um, I remember brilliant. that one, yeah. Enrique Iglesias, Escape. He escaped from uh, people's attention after that one. Um, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. A, a person we're going to be talking about in a minute, Michael Jackson, was at number three with his album at the time called Invincible. Number two, Pink Floyd, Echoes, the best of Pink Floyd. And number one, a woman who's in the news these days, Britney Spears, uh, with her album Britney. Well, and also, not only is she uh, was she a... Uh, you know, a chart-topping singer, but uh, she also taught uh, about semiconductor physics. Do you remember that episode? <laughs> who, who can forget? I can't, I can't. So that's in our back catalog, folks. That's uh, maybe four or five episodes ago. Yeah. But, uh, you know, give, give it a listen. That is one, maybe the oddest story we've ever done on this show. It's, it's got to be right up there. And I may have stayed in math if she had taught me physics, science. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny, Tony. Yep, she's a, she's a nuclear physicist, as well as a pop singer and a diva. No, Britney Spears, number one with her album, Britney. Okay, so there, there you go. go. Now, speaking of number ones, boy, how's that for a segue into the next uh, road I, I trip? I was waiting for you. Fantastic, fantastic. We are going to be talking about the king of number ones here. So why don't we punch it in? We're going to the uh, November 30th, 1982 for an absolutely monstrous album release and of course we're talking about michael jackson's thriller so uh what city would be would be we going to here los angeles we're going to stay in los angeles oh, we're going to stay in los angeles well that's yep. fantastic so here we go november the 30th 1982 so here we are in los angeles and a, an album uh is going to be launched or as they say dropped today uh, an album called Thriller by Michael Jackson. And it's going to go on to be one of the biggest selling pop albums of all time. Um, and later on, Tony, I'm going to tell you, well, actually, I'll do it now. This is Beatle related because the very first single released off the album, and it came out before the album was released, is probably my least favorite Paul McCartney song of all time, The Girl Is Mine. Yeah, that's a bit of a stinker, isn't it? I, uh... Yeah, it's a rough one. It's a rough one. <laughs> I don't I, I you know, I don't even know what to say. Michael had covered a McCarty song on Off the Off the Off the Wall album, a song called Girlfriend. 
I don't know what Paul was thinking, because Say, Say, Say is a very, very, very good song. Mm-hmm. But The Girl Is Mine, mm, not so much. Yeah, not their finest work for sure. But No. Uh, so uh, Thriller, I mean, went on to become, it is, I think it's the number one pop album of all time, but number two in the States, right, I believe? I think so. I think the Eagles' greatest hits took it over, did it not? It took it over in the States, but I'm not sure yeah. about worldwide sales. Um, um, I'd have checked that out. I was looking at the numbers today, and it said the Eagles was 38 times platinum, and, thr- right. and Thriller was 34 times platinum in the States. Right. But in terms of worldwide sales, I think uh, Thriller uh, was around 66 million, so pushing 70 million units. It, unbelievable. Yeah. And I think it still sells or gets streamed to the every Halloween for sure, you know? Well, absolutely. And uh, what an album. You know, Michael Jackson, of course, uh, it, it had been a few years since he'd done his last one. And um. he had Quincy Jones again uh, producing this album. So this was his sixth studio album. But... You know, you you're the chart guy, right? How many weeks was it on number one? It was it was insane. Thirty seven weeks. I'd never, I mean, you couldn't get it off the number one position. And and one of the reasons, Tony, was the sheer volume of singles that came off that album. The girl is mine. Beat it. Billy Jean. Pretty young thing. Mm-hmm. Thriller. The song. I mean, it, it was like <laughs> it's a greatest hits album. Yeah, basically it is, right? I think, what they do, seven seven singles at yeah, least? Yeah, I mean, it was album. crazy, 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 right? And at one point, uh, you put in the notes here, that at one point this album was selling a million copies a week. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, after I mean, his, um, do you remember when he did uh, Billie Jean at the Apollo Theater uh, show? For, for the Motown, it was a Motown special, was it not? That's right. Do you remember he introduced the moonwalk there? The moonwalk, that was huge, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that yeah, yeah. pumped new life into this album, and at that point it was selling uh, a million copies a week. And it's yeah. amazing. He, but what's interesting about the album, Tony, is is the volume of guests he had on it, you know, like Paul McCartney. But who else did he have on it? Well, he had Eddie Van Halen on there, and uh, of course, doing guitar work for him, right? And then uh, Steve Lukather was on there on Billie Jean, and what a what a some amazing collaborations. But my favorite collaboration on the album is was not really a musical one; was Vincent Price in oh, Thriller. I, I'm going to have to go with you on that. What a treat to hear Vincent Price, and what a treat to hear it on an album like Thriller. You know. Um, didn't see that coming at all. No, not at all. And, of course, uh, not only uh, commercial success, but this album, eight Grammy Awards in 1984. So, I mean, it just cleaned up, right? That's a bit weird, though, isn't it? Why was it two years before the, I guess, the, I guess the timing of the release? So it didn't make it for the 83 Awards. Must so it not have, I don't know. Year. I guess it was still in the charts. But isn't that incredible? And eight yeah. Grammy Awards. And the wow. other legacy that Michael Jackson left uh, was, you know, it was this was among the first albums, right, to use videos as promotional tools. He really took advantage of that medium to promote his work. And, I mean, that, that soon became standard practice. But this was one of the first ones to really do that for all of those singles. And, and to his credit, when you talk about the videos, uh, he let uh, Weird Al use the same set for Eat It. Yes, that's <laughs> fantastic, isn't it? I mean, everything's the same. If you watch Weird Al's video, it's to the letter. It's beautiful. I mean, and I love the song Eat It, by the way. I oh, think it's, it's brilliant. And I know uh, Michael thought it was hilarious. 
well, how could you not? I yeah. mean, how could you not find that funny? Because you know, even even his follow up, which is bad, when when Weird Al did a take off on the song "Bad," right? I mean, it's just it's it's too funny, too funny. I love Weird Al. I have a soft spot for him, anyways. So. Oh, me too. So yeah, Thriller was the big story that year in music, and uh, incredible, incredible. Um, of course, the the thriller song itself the video for that what that clocks in what 13 14 minutes it's a, a short movie well it was a short film i mean it was one of the first to do that where you have a bit of story leading up to and i remember how and i hate to use this word because it's overused but revolutionary that video was when it came out uh you know it's just it was like watching a mini horror film oh absolutely and uh yeah i, I love going back and watching that yeah, yeah now I you you were looking at the singles charts uh, that week right well, what's interesting, that week when the album came out, uh, for the second week on the charts, Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, The Girl Is Mine, was at number nine. Um, but in the top five singles that week is a song that sadly has gotten lost over time, and I I love this song. Neil Diamond's Heartlight. Um, do you remember that? I do. That's a, that's a great song. Do you know that? I'm going to digress for a second. The interesting history about that song is that it's about E.T., and Spielberg wouldn't let him use the name E.T., so he had to get around it by writing a song about a heartlight. So there you go. Oh, wow. What's wrong with Steven Spielberg? Um, Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warrens is number four with Up Where We Belong, and that had been number one previously. And that was written by uh, Buffy St. Marie. Did you know that? I yeah, Isn't that wild? It I mean, is. Uh, I mean, it's kept her comfortable for the entire for her life, right? Well, that's right. Have you ever seen her sing it? Uh, Buffy? No, I haven't. Oh, should, I'll send you a link. It's quite good. It's okay, really good. Yeah. Uh, number three was Olivia Newton-John with Heart Attack. I don't even remember the song, to be perfectly honest. I don't remember that one either, no. <laughs> number two, I, I have a huge crush on Laura Branigan. I know she's no longer with us, but I loved her. Gloria, number two. Oh, yeah, two. that's a fantastic song. Oh, yeah, great song. It comes from Italy, right? Originally. So, there you go. And number one, Lionel Richie with Truly. Another, um, well, he was still on Motown at the time, but it was interesting that Michael, who was no longer on Motown, there's a couple of Motown artists still making it big, you know? Yeah, now I have to say, uh, Lionel Richie, I didn't really dig his stuff post-Commodores as much, but that's just me. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that, but. Uh, I liked about three songs uh, that I thought were... I like Say You, Say Me. I thought that was a good song. Although, I prefer the Simpsons version, Beer You, Beer Me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge... Actually, and after he left the Commodores, they released a really great single called Night Shift. Which oh, was a yeah. Tribute. That's a fantastic song. Yeah, what a great song. I love that song. I thought that was like one of their best ever songs. But anyways, we digress, folks. But anyways, yes. So that was the top five. Uh, Interesting top five at the time, right? Oh, very, very interesting. Now we are going overseas next. We're going to Switzerland. And this is uh, an an occasion and an incident that got immortalized in song. And we're going to go over to uh, Montreux. So are you ready to punch it in? It's December 4th, 1971. So here Can we, we go. Can we get to, is Toblerone bars invented then? Oh, uh, you know what? I bet you they are. So uh, we'll pick up a, a great 1971 Toblerone bar and <laughs> <laughs> see if it's still fresh in 2021.
You know, Tony, lots of events have been immortalized in rock and roll songs. I think one of the most famous is by Deep Purple, a song called Smoke on the Water, and it's about the Montreux Casino in Switzerland that burnt to the ground during a show by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Yeah, and so Smoke on the Water uh, talks about that right in the lyrics, right? I mean, they actually mention Zappa's name right in the lyrics, and uh, that had become the site in 1967 of... uh, the Montreux Jazz Festival, and it uh, what a story! Like eh? the, the the casino caught fire. There were people inside who managed to get rescued, and there's also a Beatles connection that evening as well. But uh, it was Frank Zappa during his show, and and the casino caught fire. Well, Do you know how how it caught fire? I, I'm not uh, sure if I ever found uh, that out. Yeah, it's kind of I, if 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 it's okay to say a fire is ever funny, it's kind of funny. Um, so the Mothers of Invention, for example, his band, were performing King Kong, which is a great song, by the way. And it's about 90 minutes, 80 minutes into the show. And the synthesizer keyboardist, Don Preston, was doing a solo, and someone shot off a flare gun. Oh, uh, I guess, okay. you know, because it was something to do. Back in my day, we had beach balls, but, well, we're not Swiss. Um, and the flare hit the wooden roof, and I guess the wood was dry and old, and... Um, but I liked what Frank Zappa said. I think Frank, I love Zappa. I'm a huge fan. They were very organized, he said in an interview after the fire. <laughs> I was just so lucky that many of the fans were able to speak English because I didn't know what to say to them in French. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> such a classic Zappa thing. But I, right? I can just picture this in my mind, right? Being Him being up on stage and flames and smoke and like, okay. <laughs> Well, you know, that that week goes down in Frank Zappa history uh, as being a rather awful week because six days later after the fire, um, he's performing at the Rainbow Theatre in London. And during the encore, uh, he's doing a kind of a sarcastic, but I've heard it, it's not that sarcastic, a cover of I Want to Hold Your Hand. And a guy named Char- Trevor Charles Howell jumps on the stage and throws him off the stage, pushes him right off. Oh, and he goodness. breaks his leg, and he really hurt himself after that. He couldn't um, he couldn't stand for about a year. Oh, that's nuts, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, I'm a Beatle fan. I hate when people butcher Beatle songs, too. But two things. One, it's Frank Zappa. Two, it's Frank Zappa. <laughs> oh, that's right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Smoke on the Water, right? That iconic guitar riff that I think is maybe one of the first ones that every guitar player learns just based on a blues scale but uh, you hear it it's the, it's the first thing on most guitars uh, wish list of songs they want to learn right uh, I, I think you and Rick should do a version of it <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering how that would go off you know because it would be so recognizable right away <laughs> it would be it would be really you know what it would be really cool if you, I'm being serious now for a second it, it would be super cool to it would that, be interesting know? for sure as long as nobody pushed us off the stage you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know I don't know many Deep Purple fans who have the strength <laughs> <laughs> get their walkers out just kidding just kidding just kidding oh that's right now there is a, a Paul McCartney connection here as well right so well, he was playing across the street, right? Yeah, yeah, right across from the ruins. So can you imagine that? So McCartney is on tour for the first time with his brand new band, Wings. And I've included a song from that tour so fans can hear what McCartney sounded like. And suddenly, It's a bit rough. It's not the smooth McCartney we all know and love. But um, 
the the other the other thing that's interesting, Tony. I mean, there's a beetle. McCarty keeps popping up here, right? Doesn't that funny? Yeah. The other thing that's kind of interesting, and you put in your notes that a recording of the outbreak and the fire announcement can be found on a Frank Zappa bootleg, right? Yeah, which is amazing, isn't it? But what's even funnier is that Zappa in the early '90s was kind of fed up with these bootlegs, so he decided to take all the bootlegs. Um, and basically reissued them himself. He, he out-bootlegged the bootleggers. He kept the same covers. Everything was exactly the same, except it was on his own label. And he said, go ahead and sue me. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, that kind of reminds reminds me of what uh, Taylor Swift is doing right now, right? With her, uh, with her old masters. Have you heard about that? I'm not clear about the whole story. Do you know the, the, what's going on? Is she re-recording or something? Yeah, or? because she wants the rights to her masters. And, uh, okay. And so one of the ways that she can get them is if she just re-records everything. And so she's doing it. She's going through her entire back catalog and re-recording everything. Isn't that impressive? Wow. And it's it's doing well because I saw that her new one actually made number one on Billboard again. Yeah. So, so uh, I mean, that's how strongly she believes in that. And uh, good for her. That is a huge undertaking. It is. And it's hard. I would think you're a musician. Is it not hard to kind of keep going back and doing the thing over again and well, trying th- to match it? Well, trying to match it would be one thing. And also the fact that you've grown as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. So you're you're going back now and, and looking at a tune that maybe you'd be cringing over because you were much younger when you wrote it, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you want to change a few words or um, notes or something? Well, that's the thing. I think that, that urge would be overwhelming. So I'm, I'm wondering what she's doing, whether she's being like, note for note faithful or not you know i don't know it's uh, interesting that her and uh, adele changing spots at number one right now well that's right but uh now on the chart oh wait there is another connection here right another weird coincidence that you would put in the notes on i yeah it, it's kind of odd that this was also the day december 3rd 1993 when zappa passed away it was on the 22nd anniversary of um of this fire which was kind of weird that he would die on that specific day but yeah that's a little bit of a creepy coincidence isn't it yeah just i get just after he did the bootleg thing but um yeah it's sad i, I miss zappa too he was uh you know what google some of his interviews folks and he's he makes a lot of sense you may not be a big fan of his music but when he talks he does make sense well and i always loved his uh, testimony before the uh, pmrc member back in the 80s oh when, that's fantastic yeah really him, good him and john Len- uh john um denver of all people yeah yeah because they expected uh, denver to walk in there and uh tow the party line and he ripped into them even more than zappa did it was unbelievable unbelievable but i did like zappa and denver after they they're being interviewed after saying where was Prince? Where was Madonna? Where were all these people who are being censored? Why aren't they here? Mm-hmm. Why is it up to John Denver, of all people, and Frank Zappa? You know? Yeah, you know, a fascinating time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, which uh, charts uh, did you pick for this week? Well, this week I did a UK top five, um, just because I thought it was, I don't know, we're in Europe anyways. And it was a very interesting top five. Number five was a group called T-Rex with Electric Warrior. Okay, That's I Mark Boland. That. Yeah. Number four, John Lennon. You might remember him. He was in a band called The Beatles <laughs> with an album called Imagine. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer were number three. Pictures at an exhibition. Okay. Number number two is interesting. It's it's top of the pops 20, but it what it is is, is actually 
studio musicians recreating the hits of the time. So it's not the actual artists, it's covers of top hits at that time. Oh, wow. Uh, and number one was, <laughs> this is how it's listed, it's Led Zeppelin 4. But if you look at the actual chart, it says Led Zeppelin, the new album. Oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know what to call it, right? <laughs> um, interestingly, in America, number one was Santana. Number five was Carol King. Madge was at number six. And seven is your favorite, Chicago at Carnegie Hall. But you know what? I just, I brought this up because we've talked about this before, but 71 was such an incredible, incredible year for music. And um, in England at the time, you had Elvis in the top 100, Carol King with Tapestry, Santana, Jim Reeves, a Christmas album, and one of my favorite folk bands, Linda's Farn. So just an interesting chart, you know? Well, absolutely. And uh, one of the things I was noticing on this chart is it was actually one of the weeks in 1971 where Tapestry wasn't number one, right? So, Well, and that's what Thriller. I mean, the Tapestry was the thriller of its day, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it was the best-selling album of all time for a little while anyway. Yeah, until um, Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, we're going to go back to the present and do our... Uh, new segment it's called from memphis to motown and uh we're going to be talking about memphis this is uh, such a great story that we had to talk about it because it happened this week in rock and roll history so you're ready to head home and we'll just uh, chat about uh, some memphis news that happened this week in rock history absolutely absolutely okay here we go So this is our new segment called From Memphis to Motown, and we're going to take a look at Elvis Presley this week, but not just Elvis Presley. This is the week that the so-called Million Dollar Quartet, it was an impromptu jam session that took place at Sun Studios, and it had Elvis Presley there, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins. I mean, what a lineup. Uh, Absolutely incredible. And this jam session thank goodness um the guy in the in the booth had the foresight to record this thing right because man but you know what what's even it's interesting is that it sat unreleased for so many years yeah i mean you would think that they would have got that out as quickly as possible but they they recorded 47 uh different tracks like little snippets some of them were snippets and some of them were Mm -hmm. full songs but incredible you know it was the day carl perkins was there to record Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then uh, he was yeah and then johnny cash now johnny cash in his recollection says that he was there the whole time because he wanted to watch uh, carl perkins record but then elvis presley swung by with his girlfriend he he by this time he was an rca artist but uh, he had swung by just to say hi to the gang and of course there's uh, carl perkins johnny cash and jerry lee and so the four of them get together and singing a a wide mix of songs too some gospel some country a little bit of uh, rockabilly type stuff but really interesting mix of tunes white christmas for whatever reason yeah i have the and then in your notes you mentioned that it was released in 81 uh on a what I call a budget label from the UK. And I actually have that album on vinyl. I've kept it all these years from 81. And it's it's not the full, sh- like I think since then the, the whole session has been released on 
perhaps a box set or something. But it's fun to listen to. And and, and we were talking about this when we were putting the show together. Is Elvis plays piano? Yeah, uh, you know, I guess some of the gospely type tunes, right? He's because there's the iconic photo that came out of that session actually shows Elvis Presley at the piano. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. that one photo that everybody. Um, but they quickly the. You know, they called down uh, to one of the newspapers in Memphis and said, hey, these guys are doing this recording session. And uh, they very quickly nicknamed them the Million Dollar Quartet. And uh, what a what a day that must have been. Just so much fun for those guys. And, you know, in the in the 80s, they tried to recreate it um, with instead of Elvis, because Elvis has passed away. They got Roy Orbison. So it was Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee. And it it wasn't the same mainly because it was so planned and mm-hmm. and what makes this so special is it's it was just four guys hanging out and yeah and you can hear the chatter and, yeah, yeah and and the chatter and uh, it's so fascinating to, to be a fly on the wall at that session would have been unbelievable well i think i think a lot of the recording you've i feel like a fly on the wall like it, it it's so uh intimate like these guys it's like you're it's like you're you know, you're spying on four guys just hanging out. And I love that. I love that about that recording. And um, can I just ask you a question, though? Yeah. If someone said to you 40 years ago that Jerry Lee would outlive them all. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. What What are the Seriously. odds, right? Seriously. Like, and I like the fact that he um, he put an album out not too long ago, maybe five years ago, called Last Man Standing. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a, there's a great quote. Uh, from Elvis about Jerry Lee Lewis here. Elvis had uh, gone into the control room because near the end of the session, uh, Jerry Lee took over on the piano and he was uh, doing his Jerry Lee thing, of course. And uh, Presley commented to uh, Bob Johnson, he said, and this is the quote, uh, he could go. I think he's got a great future ahead of him. He has a different style and the way that he plays piano gets inside me. So high praise from the king for sure. And, and uh, well, of course, Jerry Lee was pegged to be the heir apparent until he self-destructed right <laughs> and boy did he self-destruct yeah, i mean that's a that would be an entire episode i you know what it's a book how to self-destruct in five easy lessons like oh, that was just yes. and, and in two weeks right like that's oh yeah i i i still astounded by that you know going from ten thousand dollars a gig to not even being able to make 250 bucks uh, well yeah in, in but, two weeks you know, talk about a fall from grace, right? So, oh no, no, no! A fall from grace is one thing. This was a nosedive into oblivion. Like it just, he just, he blew up his career. In, yeah, in two absolutely. Weeks, two yeah, weeks. you know, he had some moderate success as a country artist in the '60s, but certainly that was it. He and he was supposed to be the heir apparent. I mean, everybody was saying that, and that's the way it goes, right? I guess when you marry your 13-year-old cousin, so. Well, in the other tragedy, <laughs> I don't even know how to follow that up. Um, <laughs> the other tragedy, the other one that was was destined for greatness was Carl Perkins. And he was on his way to Ed Sullivan, but got into a, a very bad car accident. And Elvis took his place doing blue suede shoes. And Elvis had the hit, not Carl. And that was it for Carl. He never really rebounded in terms of commercial success, which is a shame. Because he and, was a very, I, I love Carl. Yeah, me too. And actually, Sam Phillips, I remember uh, seeing an interview with Sam Phillips. And he actually said he liked uh, Carl Perkins' version of blue suede, sh- blue suede shoes more than Elvis's. So 
That's interesting as well. I, I love them both. I think I they're both, and, they're, and they are different. I mean, they it, Elvis certainly put his Elvis thing on it, but I like them both. I think they're both wonderful, and but poor Carl. Anyways, there yeah. you go. But that was one of the, uh, you know, one of the, speaking of the Elvis thing that he put on songs, you know, in these sessions, when you listen to it, it's just Elvis being a guy having a good time, right? He's not so much putting on the Elvis thing. He's just there with three buddies having a great time is so fantastic yeah i agree i agree it's it's a it's a it's a great album i love listening to it every so often it's a good one to have oh absolutely and you know what aaron i uh, i think we're coming to the end of the road trip here but um yeah sadly you know i'd like to thank everybody out there for listening and for sharing the show uh, we really really appreciate it everything that you do to help us out and uh it's always nice to uh, know that people are listening and enjoying what we do, isn't it? Yeah, I think we should we should say hi to Michelle, Michelle D. Yeah, <laughs> who shares our show every week and says it brings her. She uses it to walk and go for walks. Great, you know what? Put us on while we walk. We're, we're a great company. We really are. Yes, uh, Michelle, thanks so much for doing that. And I like this idea of you know every few episodes or so we should uh, give a shout out to a to a super fan. Why not? Why not, indeed? Why not? Hey, listen, uh, remind me to grab my Toblerone when I get out of the truck, okay? Well, that's right. And you know what? When you crack that bad boy open, let me know if it's uh, still fresh. If it's survived. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Have a good week, my friend. You too. Music for today's episode of the Wayback Music Machine podcast was written by Rick Denis. The show notes, chart selection, and Spotify playlist were created by Aaron Badgley. And the artwork, recording, editing, and sound production was done by Tony Stewart. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to tell a friend or two. And don't forget to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player to get the latest episodes automatically. And we'd love it if you would leave us a review. You can also engage with the show by going on our website and leaving us a voicemail. We may even play your voicemail on an upcoming episode. Thanks for taking this road trip with us, and we'll see you next time on the Wayback Music Machine Podcast. Hey, turn the radio up. I love this song. The Wayback Music Machine Podcast is a Stewie Tunes production.